Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of June 17th. I'm still Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas. I, sh- I guess I should say I'm Jim Henson, still director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas. I haven't been fired in the last yeah, week or say, demoted for now that I know of. Uh, I'm happy to be joined again by Josh Blank, who you heard weighing in already, knowing what a joke, what a good joke that was. Well, I was thinking, that, <laughs> don't I move up then? Yeah, no, I know. Oh, I know what you were thinking. He's the research director for the Texas Politics Project. Uh, today, we want to focus on the latest UT Texas Tribune poll of public opinion in the state. The Texas Tribune will be releasing results all week as you listen to this, Monday through Thursday. Uh, you can see the stories on that, which I would encourage you to read. They will all be by our friend Ross Ramsey, who hopefully will get in here before the end of the semester. Uh, and that is at texastribune.org. Then at the end of the week, Thursday afternoon, likely, maybe Friday morning, depending on how hard Josh and the graduate, st- and the, the graduate students work, will be all the data and stuff will be posts and graphics, stuff you can you guys can use in your presentations and papers for other courses, maybe, uh, at the Texas Politics Project website, which is texaspolitics.utexas.edu. So today we want to talk about what the first wave of results tell us about Texas politics at the moment, with a pretty strong emphasis on the election environment that we'll also circle back at the end if we have time to some of the issues we've talked about in terms of what the legislature did in in the 2019 session and how the public is now responding to it. But we start, as all political discussions seem to start, with Texas views of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump's position as the figurehead of the Republican Party has only grown stronger in Texas, I think probably much to the chagrin and and if not expectations, at least wishes of Democrats, both here and nationally, right? Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. I mean, I, you know, there's there's probably something in this poll for both sides. If you're, you know, a strong supporter of the president on the one hand, I think there's numbers in here to to you know, buttress that point that he's definitely the figurehead of the party here, and he doesn't seem to be weakening. If anything, his his hold on it appears to be strengthening ever so slightly. If, among if, Republicans, among Republicans, but right. that's right. If slowly, you know, but there's also stuff in here where if you're a Democrat, you can look and say no, but there's there's glimmers of hope that maybe Texas will be competitive this cycle, maybe. But I mean, there's a broader context here for all polling that I feel like duty bound to to point out, which is you're dutiful. I am, you know, and, and I like to still like keep one foot in like the serious, you know, rigorous political science camp and just point out like it is so early. It is such an early period in the election cycle. And it's kind of natural, I think, you know, for us and our schedule for doing polling where especially in a big presidential election year, we, we kind of get to this June poll and we both want to look back at what the legislature did and see how that positions them, which is kind of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, but also firmly looking ahead to the next big political story, which is already the current big political story, which is this 2020 election cycle. Right. Having said that, 
it's still super, super early. So any sort of, you know, any polling, whether it's ours or anybody else's that you read that says, you know, here's how Donald Trump looks against Kamala Harris. And here's how Donald Trump looks against, you know, Joe Biden. I mean, one of the important things that I think we did in this poll to try to illuminate this, which is to say most people are not paying attention to the election at this point. Most voters don't know who the Democratic candidates or potential Democratic candidates are. So any, you know, any results that we look at need to be taken into the context of the taken within the context of the fact that it is super, super early. Right. And that and that you should uh, and what's going to be headlined in this poll in media coverage and rightly so is the fact that when we ask people in Texas, would you vote to reelect Donald Trump if the election was today or would you vote for somebody else? The split was about as even as you could get. We went down a few decimal points to make sure everything looked right and that the rounding wasn't misleading, and it's a 50-50 split. Right, with 39% of Texas registered voters saying that they would definitely vote to reelect Donald Trump, and 43% saying that they would definitely vote for somebody else. Uh, you know, and so, I mean, obviously, there's a pretty big partisan split there. You have 86% of Democrats saying that they would definitely vote for somebody else. You have 73% of Republicans saying they would definitely vote for Donald Trump. And, you know, and now that's the sort of thing where, you know, if you were just kind of coming to this, you might say, oh, well, so Democrats are definitely more enthused about this. You know, we asked them about enthusiasm. There's no difference in enthusiasm for vote for 2020 election. Between uh, Democrats Between and Democrats and Republicans. Yeah. But, you know, the other thing you could say is, well, why are, you know, Democrats so certain they're going to vote for somebody else, whereas Republicans are a little bit less certain? And part of this is to say Democrats are making an evaluation of Donald Trump, who we know that they dislike strongly. Uh, you know, in our last poll, 87 percent disapproved of the job he was doing, uh, you know, as opposed to 89 percent of Republicans who approve of the job that he's doing. And that kind of points out a little bit of, of you know, the issue here. You've got 89 percent of Republicans giving him approval on his job and only 73% saying that they'll definitely vote to reelect him. But part of this is also, again, the nature of the timeline. Who's he running against? You know, I think that what you'll find is that is it, we're going to continue asking this question, you know, probably for a little while. But as the Democratic field starts to narrow and you start to see who an actual opponent is going to be, Republican support is going to solidify once they know, even if they're, you know, once Republican voters know who the opposition is. Because right. even if they don't agree with Trump 100% of the time, or they you know maybe have a problem with style or whatever, it doesn't mean that they're going to vote for Bernie Sanders, right. know, for example. And one thing to clarify on that is we said it was 50-50, and then we gave you the numbers right. for definitely going to vote for Trump and definitely going to vote for someone else. So if you, we also had these medium points that said, well, I'd probably vote for Trump, or I'd probably vote for someone else. The probably's, the probably vote for was 11, and the for Trump and the probably vote for someone else was 7%. You add that up and that's how you get right. the 50-50 split. Um, yeah, and I think the difficulty in interpreting this, you kind of allude to, is that you look at Trump's job approval and it's you know on the high end of the band that we've seen him in in Texas. He was, so he's 52, job, 52 positive approval, 44 negative, only five didn't, you know, said they didn't have an opinion. And that's up a few points. He's been mostly in the high 40s. I think he's hit over 50 maybe once or twice. I'm not sure, but but 52 is definitely in the high end of where he's been yeah. he's been fluctuating. And you'll also notice if you look at national polling, if you watch the news, that's a little higher than his national level as well, which which we would expect here. But for Democrats, it's not 
you know, he's not, you know, basically creaming the unnamed Democratic opponent. So you're going to see a lot of people interested in this as well. Um, you know, the one of the other things that we saw that was interesting in this on the Democratic side is that we pulled in the Democratic primary race. A lot of interest in the native son, Beto O'Rourke, right now. But Beto was running behind the what you know the guy who's having a moment because he's more nationally well known and he's taking up a lot of media oxygen former president joe biden or former vice president joe biden yeah and this comes back to i mean you know look it, as this campaign cycle plays out it may turn out that biden is the front runner for ever forever yeah sure well, probably I mean, not i don't want to say for i was about to say for a reason but i realize he's a front runner for a reason right now and the reason right now is the fact that he has the highest name identification of any of the Democrats. What I mean by that is when you ask people, you know, there's a couple of ways you can do this. I mean, in our, in our poll, what we basically said was because there's so many, I mean, there's a couple of reasons we did this. Traditionally, what you'll do is you'll say, do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of, you know, and then fill in the blank, Joe Biden, Beto O'Rourke, Julian Castro, uh, you know, so on and so forth. And that, you know, and then people can basically decide whether they, you know, again, have a positive or negative opinion. They can all say, I don't have an opinion or I'm neutral. And this is a way to kind of figure out, you know, do people know who this person is? Can they have, can they, you know, in a, in a highly polarized political environment, we expect people, if they know who a politician is, to be able to say, I have a positive or negative view about right. them. So that's one way to kind of figure out what name ideas is just to see who can express a positive or negative view about this person. But in this case, when you've got 23, you know, sort of named potential Democratic candidates, we know just because of, you know, we do this for a living. Because we know. Because <laughs> we know. That a lot of people aren't going to have any opinions about, you know, a large number of the candidates. So we just basically ask, hey, have you heard of these people? And the thing that we find is that, you know, not surprisingly, 82% of, you know, registered voters say that they've heard of Joe Biden. 82% say that they've heard of Beto O'Rourke because, of course, he just ran, you know, a pretty well-publicized Senate campaign here. But only uh, eight of the 23 candidates we tested had higher than 50% name recognition. So and, more, unless we get accused of cutting out the... And Bernie Sanders had 81. So right, for the Sanders fans among you out there, we are not selling Bernie Sanders shirts. Well, honestly, and, and you know, that's sort of one of the surprise people in the poll in some ways, but this is actually going on in national polling. Elizabeth Warren had 74% approval. So there's definitely, or not approval, name identification. Right. Um, but the main point here is, you know, out of 23 potential candidates we tested, 15 of them, more than half of the electorate, just was like, I don't know who that is. I've never yeah. heard of them. And so that's where someone like Joe Biden really benefits in a lot of these things, in a lot of these early polls, because when you go and then say, okay, you know, you're doing a political poll. So who, you know, you're obviously are interested in politics. You probably answered some questions for me. Hey, so who are you going to vote for out of these 23 people? You've already identified as a Democrat. Right. You've already identified as a Democrat. Well, you know, for a lot of people, you're just looking for some way to make a decision at this point. And that's most often going to be, well, I know who this person is and I don't know who the other 22 people are. Or I know a lot more about Joe Biden than I do about, uh, you know, Bill de Blasio. You and know, now that we told whatever. you about the how and the why, the what here is that Biden had topped the list with 23%. And this was just among voters who said that they would vote. They planned on voting in the Democratic primary. Biden had 23%. Beto O'Rourke had 15 Elizabeth Warren had 14%. San Bernie Sanders had 12%. Uh, another guy's really kind of having a moment, I think, nationally. And it, uh, with these uh, Democratic debates, primary debates coming up has a lot on the line. Uh, Pete Buttigieg had eight. Kamala Harris, five. And then, by way of transition, the other Texan, prominent, you know, at least you know, legit Texan on the ballot, 
Julian Castro only had 3%. And we'll pause there and note that Julian Castro has been somebody who has gotten a lot of attention from Democratic elites in the course of his career. He was the mayor of San Antonio. He was the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development during the Obama administration. I think we talked about him a little bit last week. He was the keynote speaker at the 2012 Democratic National Convention. I mean, he's been heralded as the next big thing from Texas for over a decade now. And these are, frankly, not next big thing numbers. Right. So he came in at only 3%, you know, in, in the Texas polling, which is you know not really far off from where he's been in national polling. But obviously, his home base is supposed to be in Texas, again, as you mentioned. I mean, he's the mayor of San Antonio. People should know, at least hear more than anywhere else, who he is. But what we did is- Theoretically. What, theoretically. But, but, you know, what we did here was, uh, like I was just talking about, we actually asked sort of these favorability items. Do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of- for both Beto O'Rourke and Julian Castro. And we chose them because they're obviously sort of te- two, the two Texas-based politicians in the presidential election. And we wanted to see where they were. And the thing is, is we've asked these before, and that allows us to see, you know, whether either of these candidates are gaining, you know, gaining, gaining or losing ground both overall and uh, with subsets of voters. And the thing that's sort of notable about Castro is we asked people what they thought of him back in February. And, you know, we didn't take the four months between then and June. And his numbers have not changed at all. So, I mean, his his pre- I mean, you know, not to be too harsh here, but it's hard to look at these numbers, and especially in a state that where means he's, you're about to be harsh. Yeah, no, it's like no offense, but, uh, but I mean, basically, it's not clear that any of the campaigning that he's done over the last four months has done anything to really raise his profile, at least among Texas voters. Yeah, and I think that. You know, the contrast here with O'Rourke, although O'Rourke, ha- Beto O'Rourke has his own problems here, is notable and that Beto O'Rourke's numbers have not moved very much either. And to the extent that they have, he's eroded a little bit, you know, within the statistical margin among Democrats. But O'Rourke's numbers are also amazingly, you know, static in the same way that Julian Castro's are. Though O'Rourke still enjoys a little bit of a Texas premium here in the sense that he ran about 10 point, you know, 10 to 12 points higher in his home state than he's running nationally and in most other states. The problem for O'Rourke and for Castro is that at least among insiders and certainly in their appeals to donors to their campaign, part of the argument is we're from Texas if we can put Texas in play, this is a in the presidential general election as the Democratic candidate, this is a huge asset. Texas is a huge chunk of electoral votes in the Electoral College. If somehow Texas is seen as very competitive or at least competitive enough at the national level in the presidential race that the Republican Party and the Republican candidate, President Trump, have to put resources in Texas, it's a huge benefit for the Democratic ticket, and it's part of the argument. This is not helping. These numbers like this are not helping their argument at all. Uh, and in fact, I, I suspect, you know, we got these numbers. There was another poll in, in Texas a couple of weeks ago by Northeastern University that also got, you know, pretty similar numbers, showed neither of them really tearing things up. And um, it's it's a problem for their campaigns, yeah. even though it's early. It's not fatal, but, you know, a strong pull for either one of them would have been a real shot in the arm. Yeah, and I, mean, I think what you can see here, I mean, one of the interesting sort of, I don't know, I would call this a, very, a pretty nuanced and, if you know, storyline for those of us paying really close attention is, is you know, when O'Rourke entered the race, I think one of the, 
don't know if I'd call it, I mean, one of the questions, one of the questions that sort of emerged after he entered was like, well, wh- you know, what kind of candidate is O'Rourke? And what I mean by this is, you know, and, and Jim and I have talked about a lot how this this metaphor is, is significantly overused when people talk about the lanes in the primary, whether you're sort of someone who is looking for the most progressive, and we're just talking about the Democratic primary right now. This is true in the Republican primary too in different ways. But like, you know, are you just looking for the most progressive voters? Are you looking to be the person to pick up the moderate votes? You know, there's definitely a lane for, you know, the people would argue, you know, for African-American candidates looking for African-American votes, but really also for everybody, you know, in a lot of cases. And the thing about O'Rourke was sort of like, where does he fit in this? You know, and one of the things was in Texas, he seemed almost, I mean, he was, I mean, that campaign against Cruz, he was portrayed as basically the next coming of socialism, which is not uncommon, but the idea was that he was this extremely left-leaning candidate. Right. When he jumped to the national stage, there was a lot of attention that they like, well, maybe maybe Beto's not as liberal as we thought. You know, and some of this had to do with some, you know, probably pretty Texas specific votes he talked about offshore took having to do with offshore oil drilling and things like that. But also a look at his record kind of indicated, well, you know, he's yeah, he's liberal in the sense that he's a Democrat, but he's not so liberal. Yeah, he's definitely left of center. And so that became part of this conversation. And that's become part right. of this conversation. But what you see in these numbers in our fave unfave ratings, and even if you look across where his support is potentially in the Democratic primary, it's striking these numbers that he looks a lot more like Joe Biden than like Bernie Sanders in, in terms of yeah in terms of the the politics of the people that are supporting him right and what we saw was in his fave on fave numbers you know and I always say this is that you know you can take a really popular candidate and then you throw them into a presidential primary and you're forced to differentiate yourself I mean better work running against Ted Cruz is different than better work running against Bernie Sanders Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden and so what you see from the last poll to this is you see a drop in his approval ratings among liberals by ten points not a huge drop. But is but basically you know while, while his overall numbers stayed even, it it masked sort of under the surface you know a pretty good uptick in his in the view of him among independent voters, but also a pretty big drop in his view in the views of him among liberals. Right, and that's sort of you know how you're seeing the mechanics of the primary process and this sort of playing out in actual views. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's to step back and to notice about that is that this is not new. Part of it is simply contextual in the sense that. Beto O'Rourke is going to look different by contrast running against Ted Cruz than he is running against an array of candidates across the spectrum from the more or less far left to the center left in the Democratic primary. But the other thing for those, you know, for people thinking about Texas is that this happens, you know, in general and that somebody that looks pretty liberal in Texas in a national context as a Democrat. You know, the, te- the center of the Democratic Party in Texas has moved somewhat to the left over time, but it's still not, but it's still to the, you know, more toward the center than the center of the Democratic Party nationally. So all things being equal, you take somebody who looks pretty liberal, pretty lefty in Texas, and you put him in the national, in the national context, and there's going to be a lot more candidates and a lot more discourse on the left because of the the differences in the political culture in Texas versus the overall country. I mean, Texas, as much as it's becoming more urban, as much as it's becoming more competitive, is still to the, you know, to the right of the center of the rest of the country, you know, certainly the Northeast. Yeah, but, I mean, but even, you know, overall. Yeah, I mean, Democratic Party overall nationally. Yeah, I mean, there's still no support here for like a statewide income tax to, you know, fund broad based social programs or anything like that. And even among Democrats. Right. I mean, so there's just, you know, that's just not the case. 
So, I mean, why don't we then, you know, think about how John Cornyn's doing? Yeah, I was going to say, talking about our work does move us to corn, you know, to the back in this discussion about the comparisons. That's where I was going was to put us now a little bit back in the state. This poll is pretty good news for, I mean, John Cornyn's had some good news generally. It's not all good news for John Cornyn, but, you know, the incumbent U.S. Senator John Cornyn, who is running for re-election in 2020, you know, there was an extended discussion that I think we've already referenced here about whether Beto O'Rourke should run against Cornyn for the Senate seat in Texas, having just built a base and, and a bunch of a toolkit and a bunch of voters and experience in Texas. Should he have run against John Cornyn and challenged John Cornyn right away for the 20 for the U.S. Senate seat? He chose to run for president. He's having the experience we're talking about. That's turned out to be pretty good for John Cornyn. And. He, you know, and it's good for him, not just that he seems to have a clearer field, but that he still also is showing comparative weakness compared to the most successful and well-known Republicans in the state. Yeah, I mean, part of the, you know, part of the argument against O'Rourke running for Senate here in Texas again was the idea was two things. I mean, the, the positive argument is basically to say, you know, when you get the opportunity to run for president, people think you should. Usually you take it. I mean, if, especially if you think the environment favors your party. I mean, and, and that's how, I mean, look, whether you agree with that or not, I mean, I think that's that's the argument that, you know, that won the day here, which is to say that O'Rourke raised $80 million, you know, was basically thrust onto the national stage, et cetera, et cetera. And again, we don't, we don't agree with that argument. And you can read some well, of the stuff. But one can see it. But one can see it. The other argument that people were in the negative case was to say, well, you know, Cruz is so particularly disliked amongst Democrats that running against him is just different. It's not the same thing. John Cornyn is a much, you know, I mean, I would never call him a moderate Republican. I, I mean, I don't think he'd want anyone to call him that per se. But, you know, he's more in the, he's a Republican in- The pre-Tea Party mold. Yeah, he's a pre-Tea Party mold of Republican, you know, senator. So he's much more involved in the, in, I would say, you know, he's involved in the leadership team in, in the Republican Party in the Senate, you know, is much more of a, probably in the US, a, in the US probably much more of a deal maker, you know, that kind of thing. But that's also hurt him over time where we've always seen that his numbers were never as strong as, as Ted Cruz's or even Greg Abbott's, you know, and some of the other people that you consider to be at his level. But in this poll, we actually saw an uptick for him. You know, we saw that his approval rating overall went up to 42%, which is, which is pretty high, you know, for him. It's for pretty, Cornyn. For Cornyn. It's pretty, and it's, well, it's comparable with, you know, his, his numbers, 42 approved, 39 disapprove, 29 with no opinion, is pretty close to comparable to Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Uh, but, I mean, this, the other side is saying, you know, Dan Patrick just escaped a pretty close election. And, you know, sort of most importantly, I mean, the big change has sort of really increased Cornyn's uh, name ID here. So people right. who could actually, you know, make a positive or negative assessment of him really mostly among Democrats, you know, among Republicans, 68 percent approve of the job he's doing, 13 percent disapprove. Um, you know, again, that's, you know, pretty close to where I'd say Dan Patrick is, you know, among Republicans. The lieutenant governor. Lieutenant governor. But among Democrats, uh, you know, the share who had a negative opinion of him went up 10 points since the last since the last poll in February from 60 percent to 70 percent. And what's kind of notable, you know, to me in all this is say Cornyn's always been kind of a little bit a little bit below the radar. Right. I don't think that's the case anymore. You know, no matter what, he looks, you know, at, he's as negatively viewed amongst Democrats, you know, with, you know, within a couple points as Ted Cruz has been. And so I don't think that, you know, from the perspective that Cornyn is just such a different candidate for Democrats to run against in yeah. this environment at this point and based on the data we see, like 
I don't think that's the case anymore. Yeah, it's not. The, and, and and that underlines again that you know, O'Rourke might have been in a better position than they thought to run against Cornyn. And just to put a little meat on those bones, I mean, when we talk about Cornyn doing relatively better, his approval rating was, I mean, as low as. 27% positive, 39% negative overall as recently as one year ago. And so now if you fast forward to where we are now, one year later, he's 42% positive, 39% negative. As you say, more people have an opinion of him, but it's a, you know, it's a better position to be in. And I do think that the Corning campaign and Corning himself have done this on purpose. I mean, they have raised his visibility uh, as they've seen the chances of a more competitive race uh, increase over the last year and certainly in the wake of 2018. So, um, you know, if, if you look at Cornyn's position, it, I, that race looks to be probably closer than they would like, depending on who the Democrats agree upon as a candidate. But now, and, and you know, there's still rumbling. I mean, I had a conversation late last night with uh, a political reporter about the possibility of, you know, just not just gaming out. So say Beto O'Rourke goes into this weekend's debate or next weekend's de- Democratic debate. He's on the less crowded stage. He's not on the, on the stage with Biden, I don't think, with the front runners. And he doesn't do anything and he continues buried. Well, being buried in kind of the second tier at best of Democratic candidates, maybe lower if somebody else does well in that debate. Does he come back and decide he is going to run for Senate? How viable is he? How damaged is he? Yeah. You could say the same thing about Castro, too. I mean, it doesn't seem it seems less likely uh, that Julian Castro would drop out of the president's race and run for that for that Senate seat. But I mean, he's in a similar position. I mean, for both of them, it would be a ch- I don't want to say it would be a challenge, but I mean, since there is already at least, I mean, there's already more than one named Democratic candidate interested in challenging Cornyn, the most prominent of which is MJ Hager, who run an unsuccessful uh, congressional race, but a close one against John Carter of Round Rock in the last cycle. And she's, you know, she raised a lot of money and got a lot of, you know, sort of viral attention for some some ads that she did. You know, the idea of, you know, one of Texas, you know, one of Texas's two sort of most known male Democratic candidates putting their foot in the presidential waters and then coming back into that Texas race. To, make, knock, out a, to a, knock out a, a, a rising woman in the party who's more or less well-liked and appreciated. It's a little rough. Yeah, it may be a little bit rough. This is a rough game, though. Yeah, that's true. Fair enough. Um, and, you know, it, w- it would be unwise, but I would also say that they haven't made a raft of wise decisions thus far. Yeah, I was going to say, if you, could see, if you could see Jim and I right now, we're... We're shrugging, shrugging. shrugging shoulders with. You know. Yeah, so, so yeah, we're. I think we're edging into snark. So yeah. we'll move. Yeah, one, we'll move on to one last topic here quickly, which is we also had approval, job approval numbers for the state leadership, including the Texas legislature, and we've talked uh, in the previous weeks about the leadership, the state leadership, particularly Governor Abbott and uh, the and the legislature's efforts to provide kind of a fallback strategy and to shore up their position in the midst of all these national politics and the churn that we're talking about. And, you know, we can talk about this more as we go on, but um, because we're going to run out of time. But this was a good poll for Governor Abbott of, of, honestly, of almost everybody here, this was probably best for Governor Abbott in terms of individuals whose, whose political situations 
we touched on. Governor Abbott's approval ratings were as high as we've seen them since he's been governor. 54% overall approval, only 32% disapprove, 14% opting out, um, including 85% job approval rating among Republicans, which is in the middle of the band he's been in for a while. Uh, the Texas legislature had a 43% positive job rating and a 33% negative job rating, which is about where they were at the end of the 2015 session, but about 10 points more positive than they were at the end of the, of the 2017 session, which we referenced in the podcast before as kind of a, kind of a rough session for the legislature in terms of, 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 public reception and what they what they actually got accomplished. So as you come out of this, it looks like the the strategy that we've talked about in here in which the legislature tried to give some give people what they wanted, quote unquote, and and provide bread and butter things with by increasing funding for public education and at least taking some arguably but still pretty concrete steps toward at least lowering the rate of increase of property taxes in the future moving forward seems to have served them pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing in both Abbott's approval numbers and in, and in the approval numbers of the tax ledge is the fact that, you know, overall for for both groups, or for both Abbott and the Texas legislature, you know, Republican approval remained basically static. And what I mean static is here, you know, Abbott's approval remains pretty static among Republicans looking back over the last number of cycle, or last right. number of polls, because we ask every poll, you know, when we look at the Texas legislature compared to the end of the last two sessions, uh, you know, again, the sort of, you know, approval among Republicans and, you know, and also among conservatives looks pretty, pretty consistent, or at least within, you know, a, a right. pretty narrow range of, you know, variability. You know, where you're seeing the increase, honestly, is, you know, is is among Democrats. And independents. And independents. So, you know, Jim mentioned, you know, Abbott's approval numbers. I mean, what puts Abbott at 54, 32 overall to some degree is is the fact that you have almost 20% of Democrats who approve of the job that Abbott's doing. And while that's a little high, you know, there's usually about somewhere between 10 right. and 20% of Democrats who approve. You know, compared to the end of the last session, often referred to as sort of the bathroom bill session, only 8% of Democrats approved of the legislature's job performance. You know, and this time it's up to 22. So it's up 16 points. You know, that's – or 14 points. So that's, you know – I mean, that's where you're seeing, and that's actually, you right. know, as we've been talking about the framing of the legislative session, this is where the, you know, there's going to be some yeah. some conflict, especially within the intra-party primaries going forward is, you know, did the legislative leadership and also the members move too far, or react too strongly to 2017 and then the 2018 elections, and then do things that, you know, Democrats appreciated, but not Republicans. There's a case to be made for that, although it's there's also a case to be made yeah. against that because Republicans look equally happy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that case is actually not very strong at this moment in terms of, you know, Republican, you know, groups that are, well, I should put it this way, conservative groups that are claiming to speak for Republican voters yeah, saying that somehow the legislature betrayed them. I, I see zero evidence of that in these numbers. I mean, not only, not skimpy evidence, zero, particularly in the legislative approval numbers, because Abbott's numbers went up a little among those groups, but they went up appreciably um, uh, uh, in terms of people's assessment of the legislature. And for legislators, you know, that are all, you know, remember Abbott's not going to be on the ballot in 2020. All, you know, most of these legislators are all of the house members and, you know, a big bunch of the senators. And so 
the legislative approval numbers are, are particularly good news for them as well. Um, I mean, I kind of put Abbott at the top of that heap because Abbott remains the figurehead of the party. Um, but it's also very good news if you're a Texas legislator running for re-election. So uh, next week, we'll have a still to as yet undetermined guest. Um, I'll be out of the loop. Josh will be in control. Maybe I'm, he'll just take control and you'll never hear from me again. I don't I'll know. Say. Maybe I'll maybe I'll go off and not come back. Um, uh, in okay. one way or the other. Director, one way or another. <laughs> uh, so enjoy the week. Uh, go see uh, poll results as they roll out in the Texas Tribune. And Josh and somebody will be back next week. Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 